Hi everyone, it's Raghul, and I'm back with Ramdas here and now, a new episode. And before we get into it, uh, one major, major thing to announce is uh, the Gita course, the Bhagavad Gita course that Ramdas did at Naropa, at the opening of Naropa in 1974 in the summer. Some of the most famous uh, uh, long term uh, seminars that he gave. It was, it was kind of a cross between a retreat and, this, and seminars, daily workshops. And it is just stupendously great. So we decided to make it available in a form that would potentially help all of us with a little bit more balance in the day-to-day. So uh, it's six weeks and it is there's a suggested donation and but nobody is turned away that's the way love server member does things and uh but of course it takes a, you know tremendous we had to re redo the tapes even now you'll see some of them it's pretty grainy and we had to get rid of lots of buzzes and stuff like that so it's a, a labor of love go to ramdas.org slash Gita course ramdas.org slash forward slash Gita course and you'll you'll hit a page which describes the whole thing and how the weeks are laid out there's additional content from Ramdas there is uh, actions to take to put into uh, put the purpose behind wanting to transform into action is really the best way to say it. So please do go and check it out because uh, we're uh, we're really ecstatic that we got this out. It's it's really a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, content. It really is. Um, the other thing to mention is our our wonderful. Supporter, better help, which is something that's very valuable, as I've been saying for weeks. Allowing people to be able to find someone to talk to about so many things that we have anxiety about, particularly. I, I did a podcast with Ellen Vora around anxiety uh, just in the last week or two. It's up on mind rolling, uh, not pretty pretty good point of view she has pretty great perspective and some wise stuff as well around this having to do with body and mind so betterhelp.com go there and uh, they will help find some a therapist uh, to work with so that's it that's it for the announcements anyhow so this this actually comes from Naropa, this podcast. It's a Q&A from Naropa. And it's part of the deeper dive that we give as bonus to, like Q&As like this, to the actual uh, substantive talks that Ramdas gave and really took the... Uh, the deepest nature of the Gita and put it in context for uh, us modern Westerners to be able to utilize it 
to move forward uh, on a day-to-day basis, meaning moving forward, meaning not, not living from the habitual patterns and neurotic stuff that we tend to uh, adhere to in, uh, in our day-to-day life. Uh, so this particular talk, though, has um, quite a variety of topics. One is the trap of uh, meditation, which is actually the first question. And I think those of you who have listened to Ramdas before are quite aware of how he put a lot of emphasis on all methods are traps, and they only work once the once they completely disintegrate. In other words, and the probably the best example, of course, is the bhakti path, which is subject and object, devotion and worship. Uh, in our case, we were introduced to Hanuman in India, and we didn't know from nothing. And and honestly, I've said this before, not much into stone uh, statues. But somehow, through meeting Neem Karoli Baba, there was a gravitation towards that. But ultimately, ultimately, that has to blow up. And what I mean by uh, when I say blow up, I mean where you actually merge, which which that which you are worshiping, you merge with that because you under you you have experienced it within yourself, and then it becomes another level. Now, I can't describe that level, but I did feel it hundred percent when uh, we were with Neem Karoli Baba, and that was uh, an amazing thing. So I do understand, you know, how much Ramdas gets into. Uh, ultimately, it's the it's not about the attachment, for instance, to meditation. And and Trungpa Rinpoche, who Naropa opened up, uh, the institute opened that summer that he started, and Ramdas was uh, one of the first major teachers to to teach there. And uh, he has a book called Spiritual. Mat- materialism that really uh, gets at the fabric of how to relate with practice, meditation, and other. So that's uh, quite a great uh, subject that Ramdas responded to. There's one on Dharma and advertising. It's interesting. Uh, Dealing with loneliness, which is a subject that is so so prevalent now, isn't it? There's so much. Uh, and and Ramdas again, it's about where the, the perspective of where you're coming from. You know, he he's for instance, he just starts this off saying loneliness is part of the melodrama, meaning part of the way in which which we relate to all phenomenon through our minds and our senses and create, well, the movie of me. <laughs> I haven't mentioned that in a while. The movie of me, that's how Krishnas terms it. We wake up in the morning and it's nothing but me, me, me. You're the star, the writer, the producer, the cameraman. You're all of it, and it's 24-7. So he's coming at it from that perspective around 
being part of of one's day to day thing, we make up all kind of uh, all kinds of projections and believe them. Loneliness being one of them. Now we have been in a pandemic pandemic which has been extraordinarily um, isolating, and we've all, I'm sure, felt that to some degree. No matter what your walk of life or health status. That's that. It's been real for us. So this is quite a, a beautiful. Uh, I'm glad that this question is going in at this moment that Ramdas answered. Then, so I, of course, I'm not going to describe it, but uh, he does get into how he used uh, a DMT, and that was a way in uh, in, in which he um, he was able to see inside more clearly. Anyhow, really amazing stuff. What else does he talk about? Um, oh, he talks about Hanuman. Somebody asked about Maharaji and Hanuman being the same as, as sort of in the lore of things uh, around Maharaji. And, uh, of course, our experience is absolutely everything is true and possible on every level. And so, yeah, there's nothing one can say to deny absolutely anything. Uh, so it's a great, great uh, talk around, uh, or, or just some comments back around Maharaji and Hanuman. And, and of course, the first things that when we were there that Maharaji said, some of the first things when I first came, Maharaj, he used to say, Hanuman, the monkey god, and Christ are the same. Are the same. And he would instill that. And then we started to find out, well, who is this monkey? And that was quite an experience as well. Um, what else is so great here? Um, acid, of course, there's a question about acid. Actually, the last question that's there is about uh, Ramdas's experience of giving Maharaji acid. And uh, it's... <clears throat> It's put in a certain really cool way. The person asks, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's comments about him being Soma, you know, the mystical elixir. Would you comment about that? And Ramdas said, sure, I thought you'd never ask. Soma, the, the elixir, the ambrosia of the gods. So it goes into a whole psychedelic thing. It's really great. So this is all for you guys uh, in, in terms of the relation, of course. It comes from the Naropa course. And that course is now uh, starting. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Not, the course starts in mid-March. I forgot to mention that. And what started is uh, our first announcement that it is taking place. It just happened within the last couple of days. So, yes, and, and the course comes in a way that you, uh, we do have some live events over the course of the six weeks. There's a wonderful teacher that extemporifies, <laughs> extemporizes around the uh, subject of the day, the theme of that, of that week, rather. And then there's a group where there's, uh, we have satsang and are able to talk to each other about what, how we are 
what we are getting from the material and so on. So there's a, and there's there's even homework where you get to be given all sorts of different ideas about what to do to continue practice on a day-to-day basis. So there you go. This is um, wonderful uh, from Naropa, this talk from Ramdas, uh, Q&A, and uh, we shall see you next week. Well, we're doing these uh, more often, aren't we? So, uh, but we'll see you sooner than later. This is Ramdas here and now on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. See ya. I did say today we would have questions, and today we will have questions for the first time in a week and a half. The questions can be about anything we've had thus far, since except death, because that's coming up. Yes. Would I speak a bit more about what I mean about the trap of meditation? Well, there are at different levels of sadhana, there are different kinds of traps in each method. For example, in bhakti or devotional yoga, there is the trap of getting caught in this dualistic love of God where it's so you put yourself down and put that up and you just keep that dualism and you're always looking for God. And uh, that's lower bhakti. The higher bhakti that the Gita talks about is where you have recognized you're coming into the Brahman, that nirvanic space. And at that place, you recognize the love and the law, and then your love becomes devotional at a higher bhakti place. In meditation, you're, uh, you can get caught in what are called the jhanas, first of all, which you may understand, the jhanic states, which are, um, they are like trance states, if you will, which are often um, almost imitative of the higher planes, like the state of emptiness can be a jhana. And you can, or the state of bliss, there's some that have incredible rapture and bliss and emptiness. And you get so hooked on the rapture, bliss, and emptiness that you become like a junkie in a way. You're a meditation junkie. And you don't go through it, you just sit with it. And these things can hang you for a long time. And that's why in evolved stages of meditation, it's very good to have a meditation teacher whom you come to and you say, I just did this. And meditation teacher says, that's stage 6394 sub 2. Now go and meditate on this and that'll take you through that one. See? It's like um, I was meditating in the Southern Buddhist meditation. I suddenly got this incredible pressure up in my forehead and I thought, far out, I'm my third eye's opening, how wonderful. And I went to my teacher and I said, I have this tremendous pressure. And I thought him to say, oh, great, you are as great as I thought you were, you know. And he said to me, go out in the field and spread your arm out and send it down your arm and out your fingertips. I said, what? I've been looking for it for years. He says, it'll do you no good. And it was because I wasn't doing an energy meditation. Then I was doing a different kind. And I needed him to cut me loose from being attached to the experiences that come during meditation. So that's more what I mean by that kind of attachment. A lot of people get into meditation is good and life is rotten. 
And in a way, uh, I think that Trunkpa's book, Meditation and Action, is a real up-level on that in bringing it into... I'm not talking about that kind of meditation as the hang-up. Although, uh, it, well, it's very delicate. Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah. The question about conscious use of vehicles in society and the, like take advertising, which is what Richard asked me to take. Um, first of all is the, the rule that there is no law, there is no form to the spirit. That when you are totally free, you can work with any form and do it in with out of such compassion that the use of it liberates other beings. And in a way, um, there are styles of life of high beings that are very confusing to us because they don't seem nice the way we're used to it. But we begin to sense that they are compassionate in a way that the sword of discrimination or Shiva's fire only burns away that which is burnable. It only burns the chaff from the wheat. It leaves the pure thing. Now, um, a conscious being can work with anything and use it in a way to liberate other beings because they have no other motive than to liberate. If you are less than conscious, then you will find that you use everything in a combination of ways that liberate people and also entrap them. And certain vehicles are more difficult to use in a liberating fashion than others. And this case point is advertising that when you are trying to convert somebody else, the way in which advertising works often is it fans desires in people to get them to want more worldly stuff. And I think at the stage that I am at, I must be very cautious that all of the acts I am involved in are very dharmic in a limiting sense of dharma, not in the total expansive sense of dharma. That is, at this moment, I have to tell the truth. I can't lie. Later, I may be able to lie. And I'm, not, I'm saying that honestly. Later, I can lie, but now I must tell the truth. Maharaji, I spent a long time dealing with this contradiction that Maharaji would say, tell the truth, and then he'd lie until I realized he could lie and I had to tell the truth. Okay. And that's okay, I can understand that now. Later I can lie when I grow up. Okay. That's the poverty program. All right. So in certain advertising, you are advertising, like for example, when I talk to you about joining Naropa's spring program next year, that's advertising. I am doing it because in my heart, Naropa's spring program next year is dharmic. I couldn't advertise for something. The prison project is dharmic. The Hanuman Foundation feels dharmic to me. If it didn't, I couldn't do it. Later, maybe I can. Later, later maybe I can say to you, what you really need is to have this special zafu with embroidered silk this, because if you can't do that, you can't meditate properly. But at the moment, I don't believe that. So that I'm saying that there are a lot of 
while there is no form to the spirit, at certain stages of your sadhana, you are primarily involved with purification and you must be careful that everything you're involved with is dharmic, like my whole way of right livelihood must be dharmic. My relations to human beings must be dharmic in the narrowest sense of what I consciously understand with my limited light to be that which liberates people. So that limits the kinds of games I can play. I really can't do rip-off games at this point. And just saying, well, I'm earning a living this way, but I'm using it for God, and I can earn it by screwing other people, I can't do that. At this stage, I can't do it. We had this interesting thing where, like when we were at Millbrook, our money was primarily coming from the Mellon family. And the Mellon family primarily were getting their money from things like Gulf Oil, which they owned, and Alcoa Aluminum and stuff like that. And Gulf Oil was primarily exploiting natives in underdeveloped countries in terms of getting oil. So ultimately, we were ripping off somebody to get this money to do good with. Now, I can say, well, we were using it for good and therefore transmuting the energy. And that's a nice model. And I think one does the best one can with where one's at. You don't say, I won't touch it because it's dirty money. But you've got to consciously know what you're doing. As I said last time about eating meat or anything, if you're going to work with money, work with it consciously. Know what you're doing and bring to it all of your consciousness. If you're going to take a job that doesn't feel truly dharmic, bring to it as much consciousness as you can. Some of you may feel I can only do a job that's dharmic. I'd rather starve to death rather than earn money impurely. Others say, look, I'll do the best I can under the conditions. And there's no blame in either case. Each of us has to hear what each of us has to do. If you're a sadhu, if you're a, a single renunciate, woman or man, then you can afford to be quite a purist, as I can. I have nobody dependent on me. On the other hand, if you have family, you are a householder and you have certain responsibilities and you got to do the best you can. Because if you are such a purist, you don't get enough money to feed your baby. In the long run, you've done more adharma than dharma. Questions? Yes. Could I say a little more about the experience of looking at someone and seeing that it's yourself? I put in the manual a thing called satsang collaboration, which we ended up not doing as a group thing because it was a little too complicated at this level of the game. But I'd recommend to you that you consider it. And the way I'd recommend you do it is you sit down opposite somebody. It could be a friend or a relative or nobody you know. And don't talk about it, but just sit and look between the other person's eyes, right in between their eyes. And then you can see both eyes, so your eyes don't have to flick back and forth, which eye am I looking into? Don't do it as a social thing. Just sit with one another, looking at your eyes, and make the eyes the focus point of, a of about a 40-minute meditation. Set a timer, and then just sit there. And then let it all happen to you. Let you see all the other things in the other person, let you experience the feelings you have as you're being looked at by another person. Just keep looking and looking and looking, and pretty soon you will start to see the face around the eyes changing 
And sometimes it'll become incredibly horrible and sometimes incredibly beautiful. Don't let it do anything. Don't let it suck you in. Just stay right with the eyes and just say, and this too, and this too. Because you have to look at your 10,000 horrible visions and your 10,000 beautiful visions and let them go by too. And you just keep looking and looking and pretty soon all of the stuff of it all starts to become ground rather than figure. And you begin to see deeper and deeper and deeper until you're just looking at another being looking back at you. Right? And my, my suggestion to you is that the best way you can understand about this is to sit down and do it. It's something that can be experienced. It is the place where individual differences look like background and not figure anymore. And it's the, it's the place you know so well when you look at somebody you've known for a long time as a, you know that they're an incredibly beautiful person and then somebody looks at them in a way that you see that they are looking at them from a cultural beauty point of view and you realize that that person's really ugly culturally but is so beautiful inside you never even noticed. And that's the level. You go in and in until the all of different levels start to fall away as dominant themes, dominant themes. Yes. A little bit more about aloneness and loneliness. Well, loneliness is part of the melodrama. Like you're alone and everybody's left you and you're in your room and nobody cares, you're unloved and you're full of self-pity and you're sitting there and you're lonely. And to the extent that you have any centering or meditative position left or any kind of connection, there is that little cosmic humor voice in you says, boy, is this terrible. Am I, oh, look at this self-pity. You could cut it with a knife. Am I lonely? And there is a connoisseur in you that is appreciating the essence of loneliness, the kind of intense quality of the suffering. And as you sit quieter with that, or with any of your emotional states, you begin to experience a peace right in the midst of the melodrama. And that peace is a peace in which you feel totally quiet. It is not a social sense. Now, let me explain something about the aloneness part of it. I once took the, I used to shoot DMT a lot, um, dimethyltryptamine. Um, some of you smoked it, but in the old days, we used to take it intramuscularly. And it was known as the LS, the businessman special. It was a 30-minute LSD high. You go up and 30 minutes later, you come down. So I used to take it all the time before lectures or things so I could clear my head. And... Um, I remember once I took it, I was going to do the David Susskind show, and I uh, took a shot up with DMT in a New York apartment. And um, the thir first thing I experienced was that I was out in the desert, and I was a whirling dervish. And I started to whirl faster and faster and faster. And I started to whirl up into the sky, and I suddenly looked down, and there were all these, there was my body on the desert. And I kept whirling up, and it was cloudy, and I whirled through the layer of clouds. Now, I, uh, at the time, had a plane, and I was a pilot, so I tended to have pilot imagery a lot. 
And I whirled up through the clouds, and I came out into where the sun is. Those of you that have flown, you know, you fly up through the clouds of the smog in Los Angeles, and you suddenly there's the sun. It's been there all the time. And I flew up until it was really clear. It was more like nighttime, but it was a luminous blue quality. And I, was, I flipped up through, and I was like a little point of light. And I looked out, and way out in the distance, there were these other little flicks of light coming up. And I recognized those were the Himalayas. And then I saw little flicks there, and uh, that was San Francisco. And I saw these little flicks coming through, and we could look across at one another and recognize one another. And after a period of time, we went back down through the smog and back down into the world again. Now, it turns out that what we all are starting to have is a satsang or a community of the spirit or a community of consciousness that is not in time and space. But we are so habituated to thinking of relationships with people in time and space that we keep running through old dramas even though we've used them up. So that you get this experience where somebody goes away from you and you say, oh, I'll miss you, and you go through a whole melodrama of goodbye, I'll miss you, it's horrible, you're leaving. And yet, a few minutes later, you're fully involved in what you're doing right now. And when you see them again, it seemed like a moment. Like last night, I called a fellow in Texas who I was a graduate student with 20 years ago. And I last saw him 12 years ago, he and his wife. And I called them, and we started to talk on the phone, and within two minutes, we were right here. And those 12, minute, 12 years were like just a... They were gone. And this guy kept saying to me, gee, it'll certainly be wonderful to see you again. And I said, well, what the hell do you think you're doing now? Like, here we are. Do you think if our bodies, these big grotesque, decaying bodies get together, see, and we hug and we do a thing, it'll somehow be more here than it was before. Well, what about the telephone? Was that really necessary? I knew they were here. They knew I was here. Now, it's not at the level of knowing. It's at the level of being that I say to people, there is nobody I could ever miss again, because nobody could ever get away from me again, nor I from them because I don't live on the physical time-space plane. And when you start to live not on the physical time-space plane, you realize that our coming and going isn't what it's about. And when you realize our coming and going is not what it's about, you could never be lonely again. You couldn't possibly be lonely again. Because where could you go? I mean, how could I get away from my guru? I've already told you what his trip is about. Think if I go in my bathroom and lock the door, I can be lonely? I can't be. It's always just one thought away. The living spirit, the community of our consciousness, that guru inside, or however you want to call it, is always one thought away. And when you're busy being lonely, all you've got to do is sit down and meditate. Because one thought away, the minute you give up the thought of yourself as separate, which is the one that's lonely, here we are again. Here we are again. And when you are in the here we are again, There is a place where you tune your microscope, where there's another being and another being and another being just like me, but if you tune it once more, there is only one of it. And that is the great aloneness, it's called. And that is the place that comes through very, very deep meditative space, 
the experience of the fact that all forms and all separateness is just passing show. It's just stuff. And there really is only uh. And that's the aloneness. The aloneness. And when you live in that, you know that though you will meet many people, you will always be alone. Not lonely, but always be alone. Not separate, but always be alone. Yes. More about what the would I talk a little bit more about the way in which Maharaji is an incarnation of Hanuman? Uh, we get a little um, freaked because Hanuman was a monkey, and we have all these associations about monkeys. But as Maharaji said, Hanuman and Christ were the same. They just came at different times and they played different roles, so they took on different forms. And um, such beings often can reincarnate. This is what we're really... Uh, now, I, I've got to be very delicate about this topic, which I will out front say is the topic of the avataric form. And rather than get all complicated about judgment of who's what, let me say this, that it is entirely possible, in fact, it does happen, that some beings are born onto this physical plane into an illusion which is very thin, and in the course of this, their final lifetime, they clear away the illusion and they are left there as a free being available to serve others as a statement of the Dharma. That's one type of being that becomes, quote, the guru or the realized being. There is another kind of being who starts as a causal thought form since if you can look at the relation between planes or vibrational levels or realities, if you will, they are interrelated in such a way that the denser, such as this, is all the related to the more subtle and less dense, the least subtle and least dense of which is the thought or the word. In the beginning is the word, which is the causal plane when Prakriti starts, so that the beginning of form starts with thought or an idea, and then it forms into thicker and thicker stuff, emotions, personality, color, lights, sound, all down into uh, solids. It is entirely conceivable, in fact it does happen, that beings who are in the realm of thought forms then with the perception of the needs on the physical plane, will then take a manifestation on the physical plane. They will be born consciously, and they will do their work consciously, and depart consciously, 
and do the whole trip. They had no sadhana to do in themselves. They were a conscious being that came for a specific purpose. And these beings come from different planes, and there are lower level ones and higher level ones. And then there is the conceivability that behind all of forms there is the one, and the one manifests on the physical plane as well as being the one. That is the final avataric form. That's what Krishna is in the Gita. That is the form where at some times when Krishna is talking, he is Krishna the charioteer for Arjuna, and at some times he's the one behind all other possibilities, including the Brahman and the Prakriti and all of it, Ishwara and so on. Now, all I can say, I have no idea anything about where Maharaji fits into the game of all of this. I don't even care. Because when your love is pure enough, you couldn't care less about somebody's genealogy. You know? uh, at the same time, it is there have been enough clues, although Maharaji was very obtuse about his history, there were enough clues to suggest that his link to Hanuman was more than one of respect. Right? Um, Little clues like, for example, when there is a reading of the Ramayana at one point, uh, the story of Ram, and in this story, Hanuman does something. Maharaj is sitting there, and the Pujari is about to, the uh, Pandit is about to read from the Ramayana, and Maharaj says to him, read the part where I say, right? just those little ones, and everybody freezes. Um, there was a, um, a, a railroad executive who came to see Maharaji for the first time, and he walked into the temple, and he looked at where Maharaji was sitting, and what he saw was a 15-foot monkey. He didn't see Maharaji at all, and he passed out cold. And when they revived him, he said, I just saw this huge monkey. Um, there have been, in Maharaji's room, there have been things like... Um, monkey footprints where there were no monkeys. Um, people who have been very devoted to Maharaji have seen him suddenly disappear into his room, bringing his tail in behind him. Just enough to be, uh, it's always this little, oh, come on, you know, at the same moment, there it is. You know? um, I'm satisfied to have him just be old Maharaji, you know. I mean, I don't need him to be a monkey. But... Um, Oh, well. <laughs> yes. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna comments about him being Soma. Would you comment about that? Why, yes. <laughs> I would love to. Now <laughs> that you've asked. Thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Soma, Soma, or the elixir, or the ambrosia of the gods, the drink that spiritizes, the drink that transmutes, right? Um, those of us that have been involved, uh, well, let me stay with the line first. That... Um,
Well, let me tell you the story. Um, as some of you know, when I went to um, India the first time, uh, you've read about it and be here now, um, my guru asked me, I was carrying LSD, and I was wondering what it was, and Maharaji said, let me see what you got, let me see the medicine. And he proceeded to take 900 micrograms, uh, three caps, and um, nothing happened. And I came back to America, and I wrote about it and told about it, but the, inside me was this gnawing little wonder. Do you suppose uh, through hypnotic suggestion or because I was so flipped out in those days or whatever, that he took the three pills and he threw them over his head and he didn't really take them and he was just putting me on? So when I went to India in 1970, uh, I got called up before Maharaji one day and he said to me, um, did you give me some medicine last time I was in it? you were in India? Yes, Maharaji. Did I take it? Well, I think so. He said, what happened? I said, nothing. Oh, Jiao, Jiao, go away. So I went away. Next morning, he calls me and he says, you got any more of that medicine? Yeah. Bring it, bring it. So I brought it and I had five pills, one of which was broken. So he took the four that weren't broken, which was now 1,200 micrograms. And he took each one and he stuck it on his tongue. And went a whole thing so there'd be no doubt in my mind at all. See? I mean, he knew I represented all of us and, I, and, you know, and he was sending back the message. And, he, and when he had swallowed all four of them, he said... Um, He said, Pani, can I take water? I said, yeah. Garam, Tanda, Hutter, Kola, it doesn't matter. Pani, Pani, bring Pani. And he takes and he drinks some water and he says, um, will it make me crazy? <laughs> so you got to remember who you're talking to, you know. So I said to him, probably, you know, I mean, like, whatever you want, you can do, you know. Because the time I had given him the acid last time, a sadhu then said to me, well, you know, that's nothing. He said, uh, a couple of years ago, he said, um, a, a, a sadhu came to see Maharaji and he had some sadhus take arsenic for devotional purposes. They take tiny bits of it and it's very good, gets you high. And um, he had a, his two-year supply of arsenic, which was about a lethal dose for about 10 people. Maharaji says, where's your arsenic? Oh, Maharaji, I don't have any arsenic. Give me your arsenic. And he, he took the whole thing and he ate it. And everybody started to cry, and nothing happens. So this time he said, well, it made me crazy. And I said, sure, you know, probably. And he said, how long will it take? And I said, about an hour. And he called an old man over with a watch, and he held the man when he was looking at the watch, you know. And he, It was a whole Marx Brothers routine. <laughs> and at one point he went under his blanket, and he came up looking totally insane. He can't. You know, and he was just like incredibly crazy looking. And he sucked me in again, see, and I thought, oh, God, what have I done? You know, he didn't take it last time, and he knows I knew that because he's a mind reader. He's a good mind reader, so he's figuring he better do it this time, and he didn't know what he was getting in for, and he's gone crazy, and I'm going to have all this on my head. I've made this wonderful old man insane, and, you know, he was just playing with me all the time, you know. At the end of an hour, 
he looks at the watch, he points at the watch, he looks at me, he says, well, what do you think? I said, well, I guess it's not going to work. He says, you got anything stronger? I said, no, Maharaj. He says, oh, he says, well, you know, he said, these were known about long ago in the Kulu Valley. And he said, um, but he said, most of that knowledge about these has been lost now. They don't know anything about this anymore. Yogis don't know about it. Most yogis would be afraid to take this, he said. And then he gave me a long list of all the yogis who'd be afraid to take it. <laughs> and then he said, um, he said, but he said it was used then, he said, um, and if you notice in Raja Yoga, in Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga, there is reference to the use of these kinds of chemicals for altering consciousness. Then Maharaj, he says, um, but it's not the ultimate samadhi. Not the ultimate samadhi. Now, um, later on, we asked him, Maharaji, um, is it all right to use chemicals? Should we? Or what should we do about it? And he said, um, he said, it could be useful. He said, if you were to take it in a cool place, not in a hot climate, in a cool place, and your mind was feeling much peace, and you were alone, and you would turn towards God, he said, it would allow you to come into the room and pranam, meaning this, pranam, you could pranam to Christ, he said, meaning you could come in and have darshan of the spirit, come into the presence of the spirit. He said, you could only stay two hours and then you'd have to leave again. He said, you know, it would be better to become Christ than to just pranam to him. But that medicine won't do that for you. But he said, it will strengthen your faith because even to visit a holy man for a few hours strengthens faith. But he said, love is a much more powerful medicine than LSD. Much more powerful medicine. Now, um, my strategy regarding... Now, uh, as you know, Gordon Wasson, for example, Gordon Wasson was a mycologist. He married a Russian mushroom collector. He was the vice president of the Morgan Guarantee Trust Company in New York. And then he got interested in the mushrooms, the, the, which in Mexico are known as Tiananoctil, the flesh of the gods. And they are the psilocybin mushroom and a few other varieties that bring about altered consciousness. And he retired as vice president of the Morgan Guarantee Trust. And he went around the world studying these mushrooms and the mushroom stones. And he has found mushroom stones, these stones that are shaped as mushrooms, connected with religions, very, very ancient religions throughout the world. And the present thesis, which is a very far out thesis, is that the original uh, mystics were mushroom eaters from the mountains in the north and came down into the Indus Valley and where they didn't, couldn't grow the mushrooms and all of 
pranayama and hatha yoga and raja yoga were all developed in order to create the same states that the mushrooms had originally created for these tribes. Now that's all speculation on history. But I don't think there's any doubt now that the soma or the medicines that were taken in the Eleusinian rites among the Greeks and so on were all part of ways of altering consciousness through better living through chemistry. Um, the predicament is that we now face is that most of these substances are illegal and therefore when you work with them you are not fulfilling Maharaji's criterion of feeling total peace because there is a paranoia that comes from working with something that's illegal and that means that there's a certain little part of your consciousness that has to be held down to watch out for the fuzz if you will if you don't mind my putting it in the vernacular um, and that's why sometimes it's good like I've had sessions where I've just had somebody on duty not that I saw but somebody that was just available for me outside but not somebody I had to interact with in consciousness uh, just to keep the scene on the physical plane cool so I could do my inner work and uh, I think that I've been fulfilling Maharaji's criterion since he told me that in 1970 when I'm in a cool place feeling much peace and my mind is turned towards God and I'm alone and I have taken acid once a year since then in order to understand what's happening to me and in order to explore because it does show me places that I'm still clinging and the first time I took it in 71 I took it in the mid-America motel in Salina Kansas uh, I was feeling much peace I was alone my mind was turned towards God and um, in that session, I had the darshan of Maharaji. He came to me at the motel, and he then manifested in the exact way that the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is written, so that I was up against the wall in total panic because the room was filled with the entire universe, and Maharaji kept turning into all these other beings and absorbing. He was sitting on the bed laughing, and all this stuff was going in and out of him, right? Um, uh, and that happened to me in relation to this thing. It's very interesting because what I've said the Gita talks about is that you take, you come to Brahman and then you know the Purushatma. And before that vision occurred, I had panicked. I, had, I started the session with a total grade B melodrama panic, a bad trip it's called. And I was about to run naked out of the motel room to the manager and say, you've got to help me, I'm going, I'm going to die. And then I saw myself running to the manager and I saw the manager's mind and I saw what I looked like to the manager's mind. This middle-aged, bald, naked man ran out of room 125 and said, I'm going to die. And then I thought of the police and the psychiatrist and the tranquilizer and I thought, no, there must be a better way to die than that. So I looked around inside the room for a way to die, other than that, and then everything I thought up, I thought, is there a way I can avoid dying? And there wasn't any way I could avoid dying. Some of the ways I thought of dying would take 40 years, but still I would die. See? And I began to realize that it was inevitable that as long as I thought I was anybody, I was going to die. And I finally gave up, and I said to Maharaji, please let me die. I want to die. And I lay down in front of the television set, which had Maharaji's picture right in the middle of it with the images coming out from his head. 
And uh, I decided I posed myself to die, figuring the next day the police photographers will come in and this will be like crap's last tape. They will find this. I hope they take a picture of the final scene of the television in Maharaj, because this is my mid-America trip. And um, when I said I want to die, then what happened was there was um, a blank space. And then the next thought that occurred after that interstice between mind moments was, wow, you can be anything you want to be this time then. And I started to reincarnate again. That is, uh, my karma made it all only momentary before I reasserted it. But when I came back, I came back, if you will, in a freer way than before. And it was only out of that space of freedom that I had this vision. Now, my statement to people about psychedelics, since I've raised the topic, I must say this, is that the strategy we have recommended to the government for a number of years, and we continue to recommend, is that the reasonable thing to do about things that alter human consciousness is to educate people, not police them. And you can license them and educate them. You don't prohibit stuff. And you respect other beings' rights to alter their own consciousness. And I respect your rights to hear all this stuff. And I would never, ever tell anybody to alter their consciousness this way or that. I don't tell people to meditate unless they ask me, should I do this? And then I say, study and understand it, and then I will tell you something. That's a different place. But I don't say everybody should take acid or turn on with grass or anything. The predicament is that various psychedelics are different strengths. And some are so mild, for example, most marijuana, that all it does is exacerbate the paranoia you're already in. So you just get more paranoid than you were before. It doesn't override your personality. The stronger psychedelics like mescaline, um, psilocybin, LSD, things like that, tend to override uh, your existing habit patterns. And most people that are not prepared and are, don't have a deep enough gion or understanding of what they're doing, they freak when their entire structure of existence starts to fall away. And that's when it's a good time in your first experience to have somebody who is very experienced and quiet and calm or to have very good music or something that you can surrender into that's familiar and comfortable. And always to do it in a place where you're not going to be disturbed and where there's minimum paranoia. The other place that's freaky for people about psychedelics is the reentry, when they come back and they see what a schlock scene they're coming back into. And usually that merely motivates them to start to clean up their game, and that's just part of the process of seeing the horror that we have created out of our ignorance. And you just get on with it, and you start to live with that. My feeling is that each person should listen in their own heart. There is no reason in this day and age why you have to bomb yourself out to awaken. Because the fact that you've even gotten a Naropa means you already know what you need to know. And once you've had the darshan of Christ, and once the faith is strong enough to have gotten you to come to Naropa, you don't have to keep strength shooting up to get the faith stronger. Then at some point your faith is strong enough so you just get on with it. So that I would say that I don't really take psychedelics each year out of any, oh my God, here's it. In three more months I can do it again. It's not that so much as 
the fact that my particular dharma is as somebody who represents the history of the psychedelic movement in America and the spiritual scene, and I, I'm not busy not doing anything. Right? I'm not somebody who's got a thing. I'm not somebody who... I may never take psychedelics again, and I may take them tomorrow. Even the statement, I take them every year, is merely actuarial. I have thus far taken them every year. But I think if you give up models of I ought to take them, or I ought not to take them, or I'm somebody who never takes them, if you are open in your heart to each moment as it feels totally right, and if you get so that you've said, let's have a session Saturday night, and everybody's all ready, and you've got all the stuff, and there is in a feeling in you, no, this isn't right, trust the feeling. Wait. Wait until it feels right on in your heart. And my rule of the game at this moment is I would be more inclined to take it with nature than with another person. But I would always like to have some other person available who is very experienced in case I should need them. Right. Is that enough about psychedelics? Uh, if you have been having good trips and then you start to have bad trips, it just may mean take it as a message. Lay off for a while. No rush. You don't have to take it all yesterday. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.